Somebody got offended right there. What you mean I look better? I didn't like that. You look good last week, too. We're just saying you upgrade, man. <laughs> All right, we're finally going to wrap up this series I've been in called Life Hacks from the Book of Proverbs. It actually started off as a, intended to be a three-week series. Just going to teach a few things from the Book of Proverbs. Once I got in here and started digging into all of this, there was just so much that I didn't want to leave on the table. And, and so we've been at it now in our sixth week, but I'm going to wrap this up today. And I'm going to wrap it up with a topic that I think is really important that we understand the book of Proverbs and God has a lot to say about this topic as well. So before I dive into what the topic is, I want to read a few passages of scripture for you. And you'll probably understand what I'm talking about as I get into these passages. I want to start from Proverbs chapter 3, beginning at verse number 13. Proverbs 3, verse 13. It says, joyful is the person who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. For wisdom is more profitable than silver. Everybody say wisdom. wisdom. Come on, say it like you mean. Wisdom, wisdom is better than silver. It says, and her wages are better than gold. Everybody say wisdom, wisdom. is better than, gold. better than gold. Verse 15 says, wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Wisdom offers you long life in her right hand, and she offers you riches and honor in her left hand. The Bible says nothing you could possibly desire can be compared to wisdom. That means if you desire a house, the house is nothing compared to wisdom. If you desire a new car, that new car is nothing compared to being able to get wisdom. If you desire promotion on your job or increase, the Bible says none of those things can compare to wisdom. But it tells you the reason why they can't compare to wisdom. Because if you get wisdom, the Bible says you can get some long life. Shout amen, somebody. You can get some honor, shout amen, somebody, and you can get your treasure chest filled with silver and gold, which means if you get wisdom, you can get the house. Come on, you can get the car. You can get all the other things, but it's possible to get the house and the car and still not have wisdom. What God wants us to do is get wisdom, and in the process of getting wisdom, there are other riches that will come along with wisdom as well. Flip over in your Bibles to chapter 8 of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 17 says, this is wisdom talking. Wisdom says, I love all those who love me. Those who search are surely going to find me. Wisdom says, I have riches and I have honor, as well as enduring wealth and justice. My gifts are better than gold, even the purest gold. Wisdom says, my wages are better than sterling silver. I walk in righteousness and paths of justice. Those who love me inherit what? Come on, those who love me inherit what? And I will fill their treasuries. Wisdom is again saying, if you love me, I'll put some money in your pocket. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10 says this. It says, lazy people are soon poor and hard workers get rich. Now, that one didn't have anything to do with wisdom. I just wanted to read that one. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody needed to hear that, man. Stop being lazy, man. Chapter 10, verse 22, though, says, The blessing of the Lord makes a person what? Come on, I can't hear you. The blessing of the Lord will make you what? Now, you need to say that loudly because we've been declaring this year that the blessing of the Lord is upon us. Well, the blessing of the Lord, it makes a person rich. The Bible says, and God won't add any sorrow with it. I've heard some, I've had some religious people try to tell me, well, Reverend... The Bible, it doesn't really mean rich. That ain't what he means. Well, I looked it up in the Hebrew. It means, guess what it means in the Hebrew? Rich. 
I looked it up in the Greek. Guess what it means in the Greek? Rich. rich. Even in pig Latin, it means itch ray, rich. <laughs> the blessing of the Lord will make you rich. And God says he will not add any sorrow on top of it. Look at Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22, verse number four says, true humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches and honor and what? And long life. Look at chapter 24. Chapter 24, verses three and four says, a house is built by wisdom and that same house becomes strong through good sense. Through knowledge, all the rooms of that house are filled with all sorts of precious riches and valuables. You can see over and over that the book of Proverbs is replete with verses that talk about the fact that wealth and riches and long life and honor are all found in the house of the person that walks consistently in wisdom, which is why the Bible says over and over, it's better to go after wisdom than it is to go after silver and gold. But I'd like to say it this way. It is impossible to walk in wisdom and still remain in poverty. Come on, let that sink in. It is impossible to walk in wisdom and still remain in poverty because every time we read about wisdom, wisdom says, I've got riches and I've got honor, I've got a long life. If you find me, you're going to get all of that put together. So that must mean, watch this, if we find ourselves consistently stuck in a place of poverty, it's got to be because somewhere along the line, we haven't fully tapped into this thing called wisdom. Because when we find wisdom, we find the riches and the honor that come along with it. Now, part of the problem is many times that, you know, the, the, the world ends up being more shrewd and walking in more wisdom financially than the body of Christ. A lot of times in the body of Christ, we think, because sometimes the preachers led us to believe this, all I got to do is take some money out of my pocket, put it in the offering bucket, I'm going to be rich one day. All I got to do is take out some money, run and throw it up on the stage in excitement, and I'm going to be rich. Now, the Bible does teach the principles of tithing and offering, which I'll I'll, I'll mention in a minute. But you can tithe and and give offerings the rest of your days. If we don't eventually find some wisdom to understand how money works, we're never going to go beyond where we are at the moment. Many times the world is operating in more financial wisdom than the body of Christ is operating in. And the sad part is we're the ones that have the Holy Spirit within us. And many times what we end up doing is because we're not walking in financial wisdom, we blame our financial struggles on the devil. I think the devil going to be mad at some of you. I'm like, I ain't even do that. <laughs> or we blame it on the system. We want to blame it on the man. We want to blame it on the Democrats or the Republicans. But the reality is if we get honest with ourselves, sometimes we get stuck in a financial rut because nobody has loved us enough to teach us how money works and loved us enough to give us some Bible principles of wisdom that'll help us make better decisions with how we run our house financially. Can I get an amen, somebody? So I'm going to love you enough today, and in my time, I want to give you seven principles of wisdom that I think are essential for how we handle our money. Number one is real easy, real simple. That is, honor God with everything you have. Honor God with everything you have. That means you got a car, find a way to honor God with your car. I mean, do your best when you, even when you show up at church, man, you got that big giant SUV, get somebody in your car, get a neighbor and bring them to church, find out somebody else that can, can use a ride to church, honor God with everything we have. Proverbs chapter three, verse nine and 10 says, honor God with everything you own, give him the first and the best and your barns are going to burst and your wine vats are going to brim over. 
Now, again, most of us living in the city don't have a barn in the backyard, but what represents our barn or the place we keep our overflow is our bank account. And think about what the Bible says here in this book of wisdom. He says, if you honor God with everything you have, you give him the first and the best that you have, then your barn or your bank accounts are going to overflow and burst out and your wine vats or, or your storage containers are going to overflow over the top. What God is saying is, if you trust me enough to honor me with what you have, you can count on me to turn around and bless what I've given you. In fact, the principle is this. God expects and he wants the first and the best of everything we have. And in exchange, God promises to bless the rest of what we have. The thing we've learned is that with our tithing and with our offering, not only do we bring God 10%, but the real tithe we've learned is not just any 10%. It's the first 10%, which means when I get my paycheck, before I start paying bills and start buying clothes and start buying other stuff, the very first 10% that I have, I pull it out and I bring it to God, not grudgingly, not out of necessity, not mad because this church won't my money. I bring that first 10% to God as an act of honor. And there's something that happens when I bring that first and the best to God as an act of honor. See, a true tithe given from a heart of honor connects my money to God's covenant of increase. So when I bring God the first and the best, the first 10%, and I do it with the right heart and with a heart full of honor, it connects my money, my bank accounts, my, the, the favor on my life. It connects it to God's covenant of increase. I mean, no, God has a covenant of increase. He said he'll supply your every need, not according to your, your, your job, but according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen, somebody? Amen. That means that when I am trusting God with what I have, I can count on God to even increase me even more. So in our process of how we handle our finances, we got to have tithing, yes. The tithe is, is spelled out. It's the first 10% of what we have. But then there's something called offering. And offering is what you bring over and above your tithe just to demonstrate your heart of love. It could be $1. It could be $20. It could be $30,000. Whatever the amount is, over and above the 10%, it's the offering that represents the love we have for God. There's a third component that many times many believers miss out on in how we have our finances set up. And that's something called alms. A-L-M-S, alms. And alms, the, the, the best definition I can give you is just acts of generosity. We, we, we many times say gifts given to the poor, but I think that's a, it's misleading because an alm really is whoever God tells you to give money to, it becomes an alm. And sometimes we think that, the, you know, that we're only supposed to give money to somebody that's got a sign standing on the street corner, somebody that we intellectually know is in financial need. But really, God is the one who teaches us how to be generous and the way God does is whatever we have left after we've given our 10% to him, that last 90% that we have, God still can come along and tap you on the shoulder and say, I want you to be a blessing to so-and-so. The moment God tells you to take that 50 bucks or 100 bucks out of your account and give it to the other person, God just transferred ownership to them. And every minute, every hour, every day that I still keep it in my possession, I'm now walking around with stolen property. Because <laughs> God is the only one who can transfer money from our account to somebody else because he's the one who gives us everything we have. That's a good place to shout amen right there. So let me, let me read this to you. See, Proverbs eleven twenty four says, some people give much, but they get back even more. Other people don't give what they should. Those are the ones that end up poor. Whoever gives to others will get richer those who help others will themselves be helped. Come on, that's straight out of the Bible, man. That's straight out of the Bible. 
See, what God has called us to be is what I like to refer to as a distribution center. He called us to be a distribution center. That, that means that we are blessed to be a blessing. And he wants us to be a distribution center. Watch this, not a vault or a storehouse just to, to keep what he's given us. So, you know, out here at the airport, they built several years ago this Amazon warehouse. And that Amazon warehouse gets products shipped to it so it can turn around when you go online, you place your order. The reason why Amazon, you place it today and they show up at your house by like an hour and a half later. Yeah, come on, it's a little spooky how fast Amazon get there with some of that stuff. And then they get there at 11 o'clock at night. Some, some neighborhoods, you better not deliver at 11 o'clock at night. But the reason why they can do that is because from the main place where these things get shipped, they don't just have it in one place in the country. They ship them to distribution centers. So that whenever you place your order, there's a distribution center close enough to you to get the products out of that distribution center and over to your house. That means that that distribution center was never intended to be a place that is stored up and stored up and stored up and stored up and stored up. It was supposed to be a place that when it was shipped to that place, it turned around and waited for the right order to ship it out. If you become a distribution center, hear me out, where God can count on you to fund the gospel he can count on you, come on, to help the poor. Come on, say amen, somebody. He can count on you to, 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 pay for, to go on missions trips. You can be sure if you become a distribution center, God will always make sure you have enough to turn around and distribute out to somebody else. The second piece of money wisdom I want to give you today is seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. It's a real big word I'm about to give you here. Seek wisdom is a huge word I'm about to give you here. Seek wisdom before you make financial decisions. Seek wisdom, not afterwards, not asking God to bless my mess and, and anoint what I just decided to do, but seek wisdom before you make financial decisions. We know what Proverbs 3, 6 says. It says, in all of your ways, acknowledge God. I mean, all means all. That means every decision we get ready to make, God says, acknowledge him. Now, that doesn't mean that you got to go on a three-week fast and pray to buy a refrigerator for your house. But it does mean before we get ready to spend any significant money, we should always at least check our spirit. That's what we call it. Which means slow down enough just to check and see, do, do, do I have peace to do this or am I just excited to do it? And when we slow down to acknowledge God in all of our ways, we're seeking financial wisdom. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, for lack of guidance, a nation falls. But victory is won through many advisors. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us that before we make any significant financial decisions, we need to get both spiritual and natural wisdom. That means that before we buy a house, buy a car, watch, we need to count up all the costs. The Bible teaches us that in Luke chapter 14, which of you intending to go to war, then sit down first and count up all the costs to make sure you've got enough to finish the house, finish the war before you end up starting something and end up without enough to fully pay for it. Well, now, if we applied that same principle in our lives today, you know what it would do? It'd make us slow down before we just rush out and buy a house because we're excited about it. I feel the Lord speaking to me in this area right here. <laughs> you know what that means? That means before we buy a house, watch well, this. We should look at several houses before we settle on the one house. We should look at several cars. I know, I know you got your dream car. But how about look at several versions of the dream car from several different dealerships, maybe even in several different states, because you don't really know if you're getting a good deal or not until you've evaluated that deal compared to other deals. And one of the things that the devil has, has mastered the art of is rushing Christians into making a decision now 
out of a fear that if I don't do it right now, whatever that thing is going to be gone. And if you, if you haven't figured it out, this, that's also a sales tactic. That's what the salesman do. When, when, you, when you decide, well, I'm going to go home and think about it. And they'll tell you, well, hang on now. While you're going home to think about it, the person that was here yesterday that was thinking about it, who may come back and buy it today. Remember years ago when you, we were talking about these 30 years and early on in our journey, we weren't even married yet. And uh, April had this blue Hyundai and I had this, uh, the, what was the kind of car was it again? Firebird, had this Firebird. If you've heard me tell the story about this Firebird, it had, had the little eyes that came up like this. One of the motors burned out, so I had one eye that stood up all the time. <laughs> and I had that car, but then I went out and bought the Maxima that I told you about a couple weeks ago that Miranda took from me. <laughs> and so when we were on the way, on, on like months, six months away from getting married, you know, we're trying to get these cars and everything settled. And so I sell the Firebird. And April was on at work when they listened to the radio, and she heard them announcing a sale at this particular dealership in Detroit for this red Mazda 323. And so we go, we, we go to take a look at it. And she, something about the advertisement just, just bore witness with her spirit. So we go and take a look at it, and we test drive it. And it had a sunroof. It, it wasn't a power sunroof. You had to crank the sunroof. And, uh, I mean, but the, the car was nice, man. It was a nice red car. We liked the car a lot. And we drove it. When we got back to the dealership, the guy was trying to pressure us to go ahead and buy it. And, and I don't, I, this is a rule of thumb, I don't walk in a dealership and buy anything same day. I just don't. I never have. And so I, I'm not buying it the same day. So I tell the guy, well, hey, we like the car. We like what we saw, but I need to take some time to pray about it. And he stopped and kind of bowed his head like, go ahead. <laughs> like he's expecting me to pray right then. I said, no, no, I need some time. He said, well, how much time do you need to pray? I said, well, I'm not sure. You know, I just need, we need to go back home and take, take some time to pray about it. He said, all right, all, all I want to say is I ain't trying to pressure you while he's trying to pressure me. I ain't trying to pressure, but there have been several people coming by here. That announcement on the radio has brought a lot of people in here to look at this car, and it, is, it probably won't be here when you get back. I said, that's fine. If it's not here, it's not here, but I got to take some time to pray about it. Went home, took about three days or so to pray about it, called back there to the dealership to, to, to come and take a look at the car again. When we get there to the dealership, the guy comes out. He said, you will not believe this. He said, we had several deals ready to be closed on that car. I mean, literally, they had financed everything already. They're ready to sign. And at the last minute, each time, the deal fell through. I said, I know it fell through. You can't sell my car to somebody else. <laughs> Point I'm making is, if it's for you, come on, it's for you. See, one of the reasons why the devil sometimes gets Christians in a financial stranglehold is because we get so desperate, afraid we're going to miss out on something. Afraid the house is going to get sold from off from under us. Afraid the car is going to be gone. And we end up rushing into a decision that we did not slow down long enough to check with headquarters to make sure we actually have peace to make that transaction. Then when it falls apart later on, why says we want to blame God and why did you let this happen? And what we got to understand is God did not promise to finance what he didn't tell us to do in the first place. Second piece of wisdom I want to give you, or third piece rather, number three, is make credit a last resort, not a first option. Make credit a last resort, not a first option. I think I lost my crowd on that one right there. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower, watch this, the borrower is slave to the lender. Amen. 
And this past week, we just celebrated Juneteenth. And we were excited about the slaves being set free. But truth of the matter is, there's still some slavery going on today. Because every time we sign up for credit, sign on the dotted line, or swipe that credit card without the ability to pay that bill off at the end of the month, we stepped over into a version of modern-day slavery. Because the Bible says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. That's why you can't get mad at them folks for calling you about your credit card bill. They can call you all they want. Anytime they want to call you, they can call you. Because the borrower is servant to the lender, which is why, hear me out, we should not be quick to borrow money. Which is why we've got to understand, hear me out, that credit cards are not unseen cash. See, the way, credit, the way credit cards are supposed to work for you is that all month long, you're supposed to be able to swipe that card at the grocery store, swipe that card at the mall, swipe that card, wherever else you're, you're on Amazon, swipe that card. But when the end of the month comes, when they, when they send that bill, you don't put $10 on it. <laughs> you don't swipe the $1,000 worth of stuff. You don't send them $10. You'll be paying for that stuff. Before Jesus will be picking you up, you still be sending $10 payments in. The, the way that credit card works for us is whatever you swipe that month, hear me out, when the bill comes at the end of the month, you're supposed to be able to pay it off completely, which means you never pay interest on the stuff you just swiped, which means you had a full 30 days to use somebody else's money while yours stayed in your bank and got some interest, but then you wiped it out completely. If you can't, hear me out, if you cannot afford to pay it off at the end of the month, then you cannot afford the thing you just swiped to have. Is another piece of wisdom right there. Do not borrow money for depreciating assets. Don't borrow money. You know what a depreciating asset is? You buy it, and, and a year later, it's worth less. So it's okay if you have to. Most, most of us would have to borrow money for the house you're going to move into. Well, if you buy the house at the right time, right neighborhood, right market, you buy it today for this one price, five years later, it should be worth more money. You should have made money on your house. Because it is an appreciating asset. If you're trying to open a business and maybe you don't have the capital to get started at, at first, it's okay to borrow money to start your business. Because if your business is indeed from God and you work it the right way, your business is going to grow and make some money. Come on, say amen, somebody. It's even okay if you, if you don't have the cash to buy a car cash. It's okay to, 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 to borrow money to, to take out a loan for a car. A car is a depreciating asset. The moment you drive off the lot, it's worth less than it was when you were sitting looking at it. But most of us need that car to get to a job to help you make some money. So if you have to borrow money for a car, that's fine. If you have to borrow money for education, yeah, I, I did, man. My mother took good care of me, but she didn't have the money to send me off to college. So I got financial aid the best I could, and then I took out loans for the rest of it. Only problem is nobody taught me how to handle that money the right way. Because every time the financial aid checks came, I paid the school their part, and I paid me my part. So I had some loans, man, and them, them doggone student loans are like Freddy Krueger. They never seem to go away. <laughs> and then I messed around in college and got on them credit cards because the moment you get to college, they send you an application for credit card, pre-approved. I just filled that thing out because I, I, I told myself I'm going to get it for emergency purposes. As soon as I got it, Corey, I needed some emergency pizza. <laughs> needed some new emergency shoes. Come on. <laughs> 
But point I'm making is when you're buying money, when you're spending money like that or borrowing money, don't spend money or borrow money for depreciating assets. What that means is you don't borrow money, hear me out, to buy clothes. Don't buy clothes on credit. One of the worst things they did is got rid of layaway. Some of y'all kids don't know what I'm talking about, layaway. Layaway is when you go pick out the outfit, they hold on to it. And every week you come put them, give them I'm giving you $5 on my layaway. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm, I'm coming to put $20 on my layaway. And like a year and a half later, you got a whole outfit. By the time you get your outfit, it wasn't even in style anymore. But that's better than some of y'all, because some of y'all right now, you look good in here, but if them people came and repossessed that outfit you got on right now, we'd have to give you a T-shirt from the merch counter to get out home. <laughs> Don't borrow money for clothes. Don't borrow money for jewelry. You know, April and I, you know, we, I bought her when we first got married. It'll be 30 years for us marriage next month. When we first got married, I didn't have the money to buy this big expensive ring. It amazes me that, you know, how many of these couples a day, man, go into deep debt trying to buy this expensive ring and do these big old proposal things and all this money they spend. The first ring I bought her, you had to squint to look at that mug. <laughs> the whole set cost $700. I paid for everything. The engagement part and then the part I gave her on the wedding day cost me 700 bucks. But when we got married, it was paid for. Hmm? So some, some folks, man, the, 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 the bill on the ring lasts longer than the marriage. Well, you know, I promised her when we got married, because you know, it was a small ring. I knew it was a small ring. But I said, what I'll do is every five years, I'll upgrade you. But how I many know after 30 years, I mean, she in good shape now. <laughs> you, you see her everywhere we go, she gets compliments on her ring and... And we just got it appraised a couple years ago, and when they told us how much that ring was worth, I almost sold it. Because, <laughs> you know, when you got a little money, you know, people assume it's real anyway. But, you know, when she started off, it was little, but now she's walking like this here. Hmm. Point I'm making is, you got to watch, we got to learn how to have delayed gratification. Young people, you cannot get everything your parents took 30 years to get, and you're trying to get it in two years. And end up going into debt to get it. You end up buying whole houses full of furniture because the rooms that go told you you can get all these rooms of furniture now and you don't have to make one payment to 2031. <laughs> By the time you start paying for that furniture, it is tore up. <laughs> Again, when we first got married, our first little apartment, man, you could, you could fit the whole apartment on this stage. It was that small. But it was ours. We were happy. Just, I was 23, she's 22 in our first little apartment. And I got, the, I got the figures wrong at the early search. She told me in the, in, at, at, the, at the break. We bought, our, we bought three rooms of furniture, the dining room, living room, and our bedroom, and paid $999, a thousand bucks for these three rooms of furniture. Now, that don't seem like a lot, but it was a whole lot for us. And so we had all our little furniture in our new little house. We're all excited. And, you know, we had this bedroom furniture. We, we bought the dresser and the, and the, the, the chester, and, and, and we didn't have to buy a bed because I had a studio apartment. I had a water bed. Anybody know what a water bed is? <laughs> I had, a, I had a studio apartment with a king-size waterbed. <laughs> so we put that big old waterbed in this little bitty apartment room. And when we got this brand new furniture, it looked good. But then after we bought the furniture, one of the girls who sang on the praise team with me at the church at the time, she and her mother, she came and told us that they were giving away some bedroom furniture. 
And now we got a choice. We can live with this furniture we just went into debt for. I can go ahead and have them come back and pick this furniture up, take it back, and let's take this, this, this used furniture that they were willing to give us, which was free. Well, pride says keep it. Humility and delayed gratification say we can get some furniture our clothes can go in, and we don't have to pay this full amount. Send this other furniture back. So we, we humbled ourselves, took this other furniture, but the furniture was huge. Man, I've never seen a dresser this big in my life. It was like that big old furniture like Napoleon used to have it or something. And it was so big that, <laughs> that between that king-size waterbed and this gigantic dresser, I literally had about this much room between the bed and the dresser to get to the bathroom. So in the middle of the night, I'd be <laughs> trying to get past. But guess what? Having that furniture that wasn't our favorite, wasn't even pretty, it was ugly furniture. But it worked for us to help us get started. And I'm a firm believer that one of the reasons why God has blessed us like he has today is because we've always been willing to delay our gratification and wait till we could actually afford to live at a certain level. There's a lot of folks that are faking at a certain level, trying to compare to somebody else at a certain level, when in reality, sometimes we need to be honest with ourselves and say, I'm not there yet. I'll be there one day. And let me just be happy where I am now until I get to the place where I can really be there for real. Amen? Here's number four. Avoid co-signing for other people. That sounds like the voice of experience. (laughs) I struck a nerve with that one, (laughs) Corey. It's in the Bible, I promise you. Proverbs 22. The wisdom book says, do not promise to pay what somebody else owes. Don't guarantee somebody else's loan. If you cannot pay the loan, your own bed might be taken right out from under you. Amen. Proverbs eleven fifteen: whoever guarantees to pay somebody else's loan is going to suffer. It is safer to just avoid those kind of promises. Proverbs 17, 18, one who has no sense. Everybody shout no sense. No sense. One who has no sense ends up shaking hands in a pledge and puts up security for their neighbor. The Bible says it over and over. Do not put your name on the line signing for somebody else. Now, I'll give you the caveat in a minute. It's talking about signing for somebody else you don't know very well. Remember when I, we had just gotten married again. We're 30 days into our marriage, and one of my friends from high school came asking me to co-sign a loan for him. First of all, we're the same age. I'm only 23. What makes you think I should be co-signing along for you when we're both trying to get out the gate? Well, a lot of people in a situation like that feel pressure because they don't want to end up having a strained friendship. Thankfully, we have been taught like I'm teaching you now. In our premarital counseling process, we have been taught the basics of handling money. Don't go out co-signing for other people. So for me, it was easy to give my friend a hard no, I can't do that for you. Now, did he get frustrated, upset, you know, maybe disappear and get in his feelings for a minute? He did, but I didn't care. Because at the end of the day, the household I was responsible for was this one over here. I'm not responsible for making sure I can fund whatever you're trying to do over there. We have to have enough courage, enough strength to not let ourselves get pulled into something that ends up hurting us down the line. Now, the caveat I'll give you is this. It is okay to co-sign for your dependent children or a responsible adult children if you're not in a position to buy them their car outright. Thankfully, with all three of my kids, you know, our youngest is turning 16 in a couple weeks, and we actually just gave him his car a few days ago. But all three of my kids, when they turned 16, we bought them a vehicle. 
And, and we bought them a vehicle with the understanding that we're going to pay for the vehicle, let you get through college. And we carried and I bought her car. She turned 16. She just turned 21, paid her car off. But what we did, I'm trying to teach you how to help your kids get, a, get further ahead. We paid the car off. And with the kind of used car market that we've just been in, I sold her car, took the proceeds and the equity that was there, gave it all to her, let her dump it into a new car so that she now was able to buy her own car, come on, with her own money, her own credit, come on somebody, but not have to have it at the full price because she had a real good chunk of equity that was rolled over into the car. Now, I'm talking about co-signing for your adult kids. Now, in her case, she... She had her own credit, had her own money, got her own full-time job. She, she bought the car on her own. But by the time we went to check insurance on it, and it was in her name, she couldn't get the insurance in her name. Well, she could get it, but the insurance is going to cost more than the car. So we added her back to our insurance. And I had to go and, and sign on, on the loan so I could have my name on there as well. But I, I wasn't concerned about it because I know where she worked. <laughs> and I made them put her on, on auto pay. So. <laughs> So that payment comes out right, and if she if she don't pay, I'll have another car, and and I, and she'll she'll have a story like my Maxima that mug got sold. <laughs> number number five, number five, avoid get rich quick schemes. Talking about money wisdom, avoid get rich quick schemes. Proverbs thirteen eleven says, "Money that comes easily disappears quickly. But money that is gathered little by little will grow." See, God's system is called work for reward. God wants us to work and get the reward for our work. He wants us to bust our butt and get the the benefits of busting our butt. He doesn't want us to get it all quickly, get it all overnight without any effort put in. Proverbs 28, 19, a hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies ends up in poverty. The trustworthy person will get a rich reward, but a person who wants quick Riches will end up getting into trouble. Look at verse 22. Greedy people try to get rich quick, but don't realize that they are headed for poverty. What is God saying? God is saying that he's not in the business of the get rich quick schemes, which means when they show up on your timeline on Facebook, just ignore them, block them. When they're dropping into your inbox, telling you that all you got to do is put $500 down. And they're showing you their bank account statement. They got $30,000 coming in every week. You know, if that was true, you know how many people would be doing that? If it's too good to be true, usually it's because it is too good to be true. And you probably will end up falling into some pyramid scheme where you put your money in, and by the time you try to get it out, the bottom has fallen out of that thing. See, God is not in the business of, a, of the get rich quick, which is why, even though, hear me out, even though gambling is not a sin, I mean, I think we've, we, we, over the years, the way it's been taught as if, as if it is definitely in Scripture defined as a sin. It's not a sin, but gambling can really become a slippery slope. And especially if, you, if you're prone to kind of addictive tendencies or compulsive tendencies, just like there's some people who need to stay completely away from all alcohol, there's some people who need to stay completely away from all kind of gambling. Because you got to know yourself. Well, now, along this line, you know, gambling has never been something that has, has, has had a hold on me. Actually, I've never, other than being a kid playing dice and stuff like that, never really have gambled. And so I played a slot machine for the first time last year. We're on a cruise ship, and I want to see, see how it worked, man. So I went to the little slot machine, sat in the, in the casino. Because, you know, back in the day when we were so, we were so safe, we had to walk around the casino. <laughs> we want a casino spirit to jump on us. 
I went and sat at the casino and put my little money in there and pulled the lever. And the little thing, ding, 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 I won. And I got home, I got a check in the mail because I sat out at the, at the slot machine and won some money. I only played like one time because to me, I, I'm a hedge. I'm going to quit now. <laughs> then then this, this, this bat last uh, basketball season, I, I had never gambled on, on sports in my life, never been to a dog track, even though I'd, I'd like to go. And so during the basketball season, uh, you know, the, the, the teams are playing, and I open up a little account on one of those, you know, those uh, online betting things, open up me a little account, you know, put a little deposit money in there, and I bet on one of the games. I bet who was going to win. I bet the over and under on the final score. And I bet something else. I won all three of them and got some money. So I quit. I ain't bet on another game. Because <laughs> I said to myself, I said, I bet this time that I won. I bet that time. I said, something on me. I'm going to save this for the next mega millions. In the <laughs> you don't want to waste this on this little bitty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, piece of wisdom. Never make major financial decisions based on combined income. You're buying a house, any other major decision, don't make it based on combined income. Why, Pastor? James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now listen to me, you that say today or tomorrow, we're going to travel to this certain city. We're going to stay there for a year. We're going to go into business. We're going to make a lot of money. you got all your plans you're laying up. He says, you don't even know what your life tomorrow is going to be. He said, your life is like a puff of smoke. It appears for a moment, and then it disappears. He says, what you should say is this. If the Lord is willing, we will live, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. Now, what he's not trying to say is every time you open up your mouth, you got to say, if it be the Lord's will... That's trying to say you add a little tag onto what he's trying to say is don't become presumptuous. Don't sit and make the assumption in your financial dealings that we got the next 30 years to pay all this off. Don't make an assumption, watch this, that requires everything to go perfectly or you end up in trouble. And that's what happens when a husband and wife come together and you take your combined incomes and you put it all to the bank and the bank tells you how much they'll approve you for. And you go out and get a house at the top of that list. Now, guess what you just did? You just put yourself in a position where your wife now has to work. If anything happens to either one of you, if one of you gets ill, if one of you decides they don't want to work anymore, if one of you loses the job, now the devil's got you in a vice grip because you presumed that everything was going to be as good as it is right now for the remainder of your lives. I got a, a fresh testimony of this, man. Last night, it's the eve of our 30th anniversary. And I thought, you know, how, how, how appropriate on the eve of our 30th anniversary, instead of me just sitting at home kind of reflecting, getting ready to come here today, April and I both end up at the hospital with a family that's been a part of this church for many years. And unfortunately, it's a tragedy. The wife passed tragically and unexpectedly. And as I'm sitting there, I'm just reminded of the reality that this life is a puff of smoke, man. And so many plans we make on our own that don't, un, that don't estimate the fact that we don't know what tomorrow really holds. Which is why, hear me out, every husband or head of house, I'll say it that way, needs to have life insurance on yourself. It really is a shame for somebody, a grown person to pass away and you got to do a GoFundMe to put you in the ground. If something were to happen to me, and I plan on living a long time, but if something were to happen to me, I expect that the church and folks would do well, take care of my wife and be a blessing to her. But guess what? You wouldn't have to. 
because I've put myself in a position where, honestly, she would be better off financially if I wasn't here. That's why when I'd be tasting my tea like... <laughs> I'd be like, here, son, taste this for your dad. <laughs> a part of loving your family for life is making sure they don't have to be concerned about at least how to put you in the ground when you leave here. Number seven, last one. Maintain your wisdom when you're dealing with family. Maintain wisdom when you're dealing with family. The main thing I want to say is this. Never loan money to somebody that you cannot afford to give away. Can't tell you how many families are in strife. Brothers don't speak to each other today. Siblings don't deal with each other. Best friends are broken up because you loaned them $300 and they didn't pay your money back. The rule of thumb is this. If you cannot afford to give it away, then you cannot afford to loan it. Even if it's sitting in your bank account, if it's sitting in your bank account and you would be hurt if they didn't pay it back, then you can't afford to loan it. Because when you loan it, you have to loan it from the perspective that I plan to get it back. I want to get it back. But if you don't give it back, I'm not going to cut off the friendship. Come on, man. I'm not going to stop speaking to my brother. Come on, somebody. I ain't going to ever loan you no money again. But I'm not going to let... $300 or $1,000 or $10,000 come in between me and somebody I call family or friend. But that means I'm not going to loan it if I can't afford to give it away. Amen. Husbands and wives, hear me out. Once you say, I do, it's no longer his money and her money, his bills and her bills. If you want to have God's breath on your finances, then it's got to be all in one pot. It's our money, our bills. I know that there's some celebrities that have come out recently and they're giving different advice Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union talking about how they split everything 50-50. You can listen to them if you want to. I think the wisdom coming from your pastor and the word of God is better than any celebrity that has shown up trying to tell you something. Because at the end of the day, we want God's results, not the world's results. And somebody ought to shout amen like you believe that today. (laughs) Come on, was this good for you today? Come on, one more time. Lift up your hands with me. Hallelujah. And I know it's not much, but I'm nothing else fit for a king. Except for a heart singing hallelujah.
So I throw up my hands and praise you again and again. Cause all that I have is a heart. And I know it's not much, but I've nothing else fit for a king. Except for a heart singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Every head is bowed and all eyes are closed in prayer. I'm way over my time today. So I'm going to ask this real easily, real simply. Do you want Jesus or not? He loves you. He paid the price. His blood was shed for you and me. You don't have to die and go to hell. The reason why people go to hell today is not because of the sins they've committed. People go to hell today because of the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And right here, right now, while you have breath in your body, you have an opportunity to open up your heart and say yes to Jesus. Don't say I'll wait till tomorrow because your life and my life is like a puff of smoke. It appears for a moment, then it disappears. What you know you have is this opportunity right here in the room and online. So if you're here and you like to say yes to Jesus Christ, surrender your heart to him, get born again, be saved. Those mean the same thing. I want to pray for you right here in this moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you to the front of the church. But right there at your seat, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. But I need you to give me permission to pray for you. How do, I, how do you give me permission? By right now, wherever you are, lifting up your hand by saying, yes, I want, I want Jesus. Yes, I'm ready to surrender my life. Come on, lift him up. I see hands up all over the room. Yes, I'm ready to give Jesus control of my life. Yes, I want to surrender to him. Yes, I'm tired of being out here all by myself. I need the kind of wisdom I just received in here today. I want more of it. I want to go all in with Jesus today. Anybody else? God's not asking you to promise that you're going to be perfect. He's not asking for a list of stuff that you'll never do again. But wherever you are, lift up your hand if you're ready to give Jesus your life. In the room or online. Every one of you that raised your hand, I want you to whisper this prayer right there at your seat. Say, dear God in heaven, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. He paid the price for my sin, but you raised him from the dead, and he's alive right now. Jesus, come into my heart now. Save me. Forgive me. Make me brand new. I surrender my life to you for the rest of my days. And according to the Bible, I am born again. Amen. Come on, Impact Church. Put your hands together.